Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there, I'm your host Simon Wabbins here. George writes me a script. I mean, it's not always George, today is George. George is based out of Hong Kong. So these always have, he was like, Simon, I, uh, I wrote, he, he was actually working on a completely different script for a completely different part of the world about the North Hollywood shootout coming soon. And he was like, Simon, I was making these notes about this one that I wanted to pitch you and I just ended up writing the full script. And I was like, all right, George, <laughs> as you please. And he said it to me, and it is called Anita Moy, The Celebrity Who Started a Gang War. And honestly, with a title like A Celebrity Starting a Gang War, it's pretty good, isn't it? I was like, yeah, that, that sounds like a good one. Let's do it. The name of the person is Anita Mui, maybe? Not sure. I did look up the pronunciation on that one. But uh, this is based in Hong Kong, where and, and the closest pronunciation I found was Vietnamese. So I was like, okay, <laughs> that's obviously not right, is it? But whatever. Um... If you're enjoying this show, please do leave it a review wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you're watching on YouTube, hello, like, subscribe, all of that sort of stuff. And let's jump into it. There are few cities on earth more closely identified with its cinema than Hong Kong. Not only has the industry served as a beacon of pride for Hong Kongers both domestically and abroad, but it has also served as a mirror onto the city's culture, reflecting the various twists and evolutions of the city's culture and history. Yeah, this is one of those things that I know. I know Hong Kong cinema is a thing. Like, I've heard of that, and you often know that, yeah, this, is, this movie was actually based on the original Hong Kong production of this, and the original one is far superior. <laughs> Now let me look down my enormously long nose at you. But I'm one of these people, it's like, I've n- I don't think I've ever seen a Hong Kong movie. And it's slightly embarrassing. And I'm sure George will watch this and he'll be like, ah, uncultured swine. <laughs> but I don't know. I have to say I do. It sounds so, so uncultured. But I really, I don't, it sounds so bad. I can't even say it, but I don't really like reading subtitles. <laughs> As for a man who, like, spends his life reading. <laughs> ah! I mean, reading scripts. My, I was talking to uh, another one of my writers who's written a book, and I've been, like, slowly making my way through this book, and it's embarrassingly slow how slow I read. Because it's like, I go to bed at night, I open this book, and I read, like, a page, and it's not because it's boring that I fall asleep. It's a fantastic book that I'm greatly enjoying. But it's like, I read a page, and I'm just like, my, my phone has fallen out of my hands as I've fallen asleep, because... Um, yeah, I don't know. I got two super young kids. I got a pretty demanding job. <laughs> demanding. <laughs> I work quite a lot, but like, I don't know. Like, this isn't like a bit, not minor or anything. And, uh, yeah, what are we talking about? I'm so sorry. We're on the biggest tangent and we're only like three minutes in. No one's still listening or watching. I'm so sorry. We will get to it. Let's go. In the 1950s, following a large wave of immigration from Shanghai and the east coast of the Chinese mainland, Mandarin language movies in the style of those being produced in Shanghai were all the rage, alongside imported Western movies. In the late 1960s, following the 1967 riots, Hong Kong spearheaded a revival of Zuxia martial arts movies, which in many ways echoed and paralleled the city's own search for identity in this period. I gotta look that up. I thought George normally provides me, like, uh, little pronunciation guides, but not today. It's all on me. So it's all gonna be wrong. That is not in my pronunciation dictionary. Did I spell that right? Zuxia. X-U-I-A. X-U-X-I-A. Good lord. No, I didn't spell it right because it's got two freaking X's in it. X-U-X-I-A. Nope. Also not in there. 
All right, let's get back to the script. Imagine that I'm pronouncing it correctly. I mean, 99% of you have no idea how it's pronounced, so uh, don't even know why I'm going down this tangent, to be honest. In the mid-1980s, just as the city itself began to explode in prosperity as Chinese capital flooded in before the handover, Hong Kong cinema entered its golden age, both domestically and overseas, as a plethora of comedies and action movies led by local box office stars such as Andy Lau, Cherry Chung, and Jackie Chan. Heard of Jackie Chan, led the industry to never seen before box office returns and widespread international recognition. I heard that on the Rush Hour movies, I'm not sure if this is true or whether it was one of Jackie Chan's earlier movies, they didn't really speak English and they just fed the lines to him. So there'd be some guy off saying, and they're like, Jackie, Jackie, like this. And they'd like, um, and they'd feed the line to him and it'd just repeat the sounds. <laughs> Okay. With this strong mirroring of Hong Kong society within its cinema, perhaps it's not surprising then that the golden age of Hong Kong gangster in the 1980s and 1990s coincided with the golden age of Hong Kong triad during the same period. The connection between the movie and criminal industries was far from correlative too, as in the late pre-handover period, the Hong Kong movie industry was all but a subsidiary of the triads. What? <laughs> In particular, the 14K and Sion clans, estimates from stars of the period who have been willing to talk publicly, estimate that as many as 90% of the movies produced in Hong Kong at the time had some sort of triad connection, be it funding or even dictation in directing. I mean, okay, I get it. Like, that's. Uh, I've watched enough Breaking Bad to know that you got to launder that money, right? And uh, I guess if you're like, here's a bunch of cash director, go make the money. And then the movie makes the money. The movie that the money makes then goes back to you and is money from, you know, not horrible crimes, but instead is money from producing movies. I mean, it doesn't seem like money laundering be that complicated to solve. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think, I guess, I don't know, just total guess. And also, then you can also be like, and also make my crimes look awesome. Make it look like we're not bad at all and that uh, modern slavery is actually good. <laughs> okay? Okay? And drugs, also good. People need drugs. They love drugs. We're just providing them with something they love at a fair market price, as determined by us. Today we look into a particular case when the two worlds collided in spectacular and violent fashion when a drunken and enraged triad lord assaulted Anita Mui, one of the darlings of the Hong Kong entertainment industry, and the many shootings that followed as a result. The Star Anita Mui, the central character in today's story, may be unfamiliar to our audience, so now let's take a chance to introduce her. Born on the 10th of October 1963, anyone who knew her as a little girl could tell that she was destined for stardom. She began performing at the age of five, singing Chinese opera in theaters around Hong Kong. She dropped out of junior high school at the age of 14 and began performing professionally at bars and nightclubs before getting her big break, tragically having to work as soon as she was able as she'd been orphaned as an infant following the passing of her father. Well, things worked out well for her, because there's a totally other situation where it's like she drops out of school at 14 to be a singer in bars and nightclubs. And there is an entirely different path that her life could have taken, one of much more misery. But instead, she became mega famous. Good for her. She finally got her big break in 1982 when she defeated 3,000 other hopefuls to win first prize in the New Talent Amateur Singing Competition. Well, that's also known as like, what's that so uh, TV show, Popstar? Popstar? Is it Popstar? There's like a show where people sing. This is like a Hong Kong's version of Popstar. I feel like it's something got talent, isn't it? Something's got talent. 
Britain's Got Talent, America's Got Talent, something like that. Although that's different. Is that just singing? Who cares, Simon? Get back to the bloody story. Anita Moy's unique voice and style, as well as her ever-evolving image and confident temperament, quickly won her a mainstream following and saw her dubbed the Madonna of the East by her foreign fans and the Daughter of Hong Kong by her domestic ones. She released her first album, Debts of the Heart, shortly after her competition winning 1982. The year after that, in 1983, at the age of 20, she starred in her first movie. The Sensational Pair would go on to star in over 40 movies over her career. This, her like music, it sounds very sappy, doesn't it? What's the uh, album called? Debts of the Heart. <laughs> What's the movie called? The Sensational Pair. It's like, it's a little bit cringe, but I'm sure they're great. I don't mean, uh, sorry, I don't, Hong Kong cinema's brilliant, and the music from Hong Kong, also brilliant. <laughs> I don't know, you gotta be careful. <laughs> Uh, you don't want to go against like some big group like if you say anything bad about k-pop oh boy oh boy you're gonna get in trouble for that i love k-pop k-pop is brilliant i listen to it it's the only music i listen to ultimately in an industry where fame evaporated as quickly as it came she managed to stay relevant and continued pumping out chart-topping albums and movies for the next two decades before her untimely and unfortunate death due to cervical cancer in 2003 at the age of 40. well that's a sad ending Backgrounds. In the 1990s, the Hong Kong underworld's traditional criminal portfolio of underground pornography, human trafficking, gambling rings, and drug running was under severe attack by the police, who, following an influx of mainland funding, following the signing of the Sino-British Joint Declaration, finally had the resources to begin to crush organized crime in the city. The money was much harder to make than it had been in the past, and it was even harder to launder. I told you it's to do with money laundering. Big brain. Consequently, many of the major underworld players of 1990s Hong Kong looked to diversify into legitimate businesses, ideally businesses with lots of opportunities to fudge their accounting and launder their dirty money. The booming movie industry, with its opportunity for sky-high returns on investments, naturally became a target for these diversified gangsters. That's the best case money laundering, right? Because I feel like with money laundering, you're normally like, yeah, well, you know, you put it into a business that isn't profitable, and then you make that business look profitable to take the money right at least what well, i know for breaking bad and if you're actually putting it into a business that is making money that's like the dream for money launderers right herman yao the director of the untold story a dramatis a dramatization of the eight immortals murder we discussed in a previous episode yes once commented that was one of the most brutal episodes that i've ever recorded and that was after i asked george to tone it down i'd recorded the previous one Oh, I remember. I think I'd recorded it, and then I was like, my mic was off or something, or it was the I was using the wrong microphone, so it sounded horrible. And I re-recorded. And I was like, George, can we can we do a light edit on this to uh, remove all the gore because it was intense. Uh, this director commented, As soon as the cameras started rolling, you make money. As long as a camera is rolling, movie executives and distributors will be falling over themselves to buy it. Say the cost of a movie is only 3 million Hong Kong dollars, 385,000 US dollars. Hollywood will immediately offer you 6 million Hong Kong dollars, 780,000 US dollars. It's better than printing money. But again, I'm in the wrong business. I need to be like in the triad YouTube game. <laughs> Right. Just to be clear, I'm not volunteering myself as a money launderer. I don't think that would work. 
<laughs> this sounds all well also it's illegal i wouldn't do that <laughs> this all sounds well and good who doesn't like an easy and bountiful payday after all but the problem starts to emerge when triad bosses oh yeah also you could get murdered because you'd be like oh no i made a video talking about how triads are bad and then you end up like in a river with concrete shoes or however they do it in hong kong but problems start to emerge when triad bosses diversifying into cinema bring the business practices of their old trade with them for example should an actor in this period find themselves less than enthused about a project being pitched to them it wasn't uncurried uncommon to be encouraged to sign a contract at gunpoint the cruel treatment wasn't reserved for up-and-coming and unknown stars either with big names such as andy lau and jet lee reportedly having to endure such criminal encounters during this period that's so intense like the amount of discretion i guess it's also because you know i'm not working for like a movie studio or someone but the amount of discretion that i get and what i make is really nicely high and it would be really intense if someone was just like okay fact boy look you're gonna start making videos about ghosts and talking about how they're real and conspiracy theory you're gonna become alex jones be like no you're gonna be like a combination of alex jones and the guy from history channel so not just misinformation but also horrible alex jones style being a penis head um and i'll be like i don't want to and they'll be like okay i love it oh my god that must be what's happening with these guys because otherwise why would you make such terrible horrible damaging content and i'm mostly talking about alex jones we all know the history channel ancient aliens is just a bit of a laugh that i've never seen maybe we should watch that and then talk about it what are we talking about we this is not relevant at all i'm so sorry for all the meandering today the nefarious motivational techniques didn't end sim simple stick-ups either with kidnapping and blackmailing of stars also being relatively common in this period the most famous example of this is the kidnapping and subsequent blackmailing of karina lau that occurred in 1990. we can discuss this incident in its own right in a future video but just for context in this incident karina lau was kidnapped by the gangster chen hui min while returning home late from a night of celebrating following the wrapping of one of her movies she was kidnapped and forcibly photographed nude the end result of which was then used to blackmail her do not think however that the entertainment industry was complicit in the underworld insurrection into its industry as it most certainly was not and attempts were made to push out the toxic influence of organized criminals from their industry you say that but also aren't they paying for everything and making it like wasn't that dude quoted as being like yo 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 we're basically printing money um it kind of feels like yeah 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 we don't like this but also you feel about the same way about like an investor that you don't like he's pushing your movie or your business or whatever in a direction that you don't really want but he's also the one with all the money or she or she but these i guess like gangsters are mostly dudes in my mind i'm probably correct in that right for example, on January the 15th, 1992, following the attempted theft of family affairs negatives by three men at gunpoint, the Show Business Against Violence campaign was launched. Does what it says on the tin, doesn't it? In which huge numbers of workers from the industry, from runners to A-list stars such as Jackie Chan, began campaigning publicly to draw attention to the problem. This campaign was ultimately for naught, however, as during the early hours of April the 16th, 1992, three months after the first show business against violence rally, the industry saw its first gangland murders, which is where we come back to Anita Moy's involvement in today's story. 
Now, just before we continue with today's podcast, let me thank today's wonderful sponsor, Shopify. What is Shopify? Well, it is the most basic form. Shopify basically makes what was impossible or only available to giant corporations a few years ago entirely possible for just about everybody. If you're thinking right now, I've got a great idea for a store, I want to sell something online, well, you must do it with Shopify because they've just made it ridiculously easy for you to do just that. It gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, so upstart startups and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. I've told this story before, I think, in these ad reads, but a friend of mine who runs like a... He ran this like big website selling a whole bunch of stuff, and he had a custom built. It cost him an absolute fortune back in the day. And then he was like, yeah, we just switched over to Shopify because all of that money I spent back in the day was wasted because the shop never worked that brilliantly. And then Shopify came along, and it was much cheaper and does everything better. So, uh... Yeah, I mean, he was kind of disappointed that he spent all that money in the past, but uh, Shopify was a much better and cheaper experience, which is rare. How often is something both better and cheaper? Look, Shopify powers millions of businesses from first sale to full scale. Yeah, you can really scale up. So if you're selling and you're like, I don't know, you're selling like 10 things a month, 10 widgets. And you're like, well, now I'm selling 1,000 widgets because it really works out. Shopify's like, no problem. 10,000 widgets, no problem. A million? I don't even know. That seems like a lot, but... I can't imagine why not. Shopify would make it possible. Yes. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. It's more than a store. Shopify grows with you. Go to shopify.com casual, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Shopify.com casual right now. Again, shopify.com casual. And now back to today's episode. The Assassination and the Assault On April the 16th, 1992, Kai Ziming, Jet Li, and Jackie Chan's then-manager was returning to his office in Simsa Soi to meet with some international distributors interested in an upcoming film, but he never made it to that meeting. He stood at the entrance to his office tower, fumbling through his pockets to try and find his security ID when two men approached him silently. Without hesitation, one of the men turned to look for passing patrols as the other placed a self-loading handgun up to the back of Kai Ziming's head and pulled the trigger. He fell to the floor, and the gunman put five more rounds into his chest. The poor man had no chance of recovery, and he was pronounced dead when paramedics arrived on the scene. A shockwave flew through the Hong Kong movie industry, as in a flash, the already parasitic influence of the triads evolved into an altogether more dangerous and serious form. Jet Li, who ironically had been filming The Bodyguard from Beijing at the time, hired extensive private security and bodyguards for himself and the rest of the industry followed in his footsteps. Kai Ziming was buried on the 4th of May 1992, three weeks after his shooting. His wake turned into a protracted celebration of the man's life, which eventually saw many of his friends and colleagues, including Anita Moy, head to the Take One Karaoke Bar on Kent Road in the Kowloon, in the district of Kowloon Tong. This was an exclusive and expensive establishment, frequented only by the rich and powerful of Hong Kong. You couldn't enter without an invite or a membership, and the club only housed small but lavish private rooms for its VIP clientele. Unfortunately for Anita Moy, this also included the rich and powerful triad lords of the city. Yeah, I'm like, well, that's not going to keep the gangsters out, is it? Because they're rich and powerful. They're going to be in there as well. 
Suddenly, late in the night, while Anita Moya was on her microphone, a small band of men invited themselves into her room. Only one of them was familiar to her, Juan Pak Ming, the younger brother of the actor and director Raymond Wong Pak Ming. He told Anita Moya that he wanted to introduce her to Huang Lang Wei, a very powerful member of the Henan Triad who was looking to expand his connections in the entertainment industry. The two talked, exchanged pleasantries, and he left the room shortly thereafter, and all appeared well. An hour or so later, a large group of ten men burst into the room and demanded she follow them immediately, as Huan Lang Wei had an urgent and most profitable matter that he needed to discuss with her. That is not sounding like a request to be like, no thanks, I'm singing karaoke. And the guy's like, I'm not asking. Realizing that she actually had remarkably little to say on the matter, yes, she followed the men to Huan Lang Wei's room, who demanded she assist in the production. Of an upcoming movie. Anita Moy stood her ground and politely explained that she didn't like discussing business in her spare time, especially not on a night which was supposed to be commemorating a dear friend. Oh, yeah, they're at this dude's wake at a karaoke bar, which is uh, different, I guess, but it's Hong Kong. I, I, they do things differently there. Who had met his fate at the hands of men just like Huang Lang Wei. His previously cordial, if forceful, demeanor disappeared in an instant, and he left to his feet in a fit of rage and slaps Anita Moya to the floor with one powerful swipe of the hand before he then turns and punched her assistant to the ground also. Chaos erupted in the room. Some of Huang Lei Wei's goons rushed to his side, which, with puffed-up chests and egos, eager to earn their boss's favor with a strong show of force, and other more braver members of his group began delicately encouraging him to remain calm. Why doesn't she have security? I thought they'd all hired security by this point. The pair were able to safely remove themselves from the room without incurring further beatings, and as she crawled back into her own karaoke room, noticeably injured and distressed, her group began frantically thinking of anyone who they could recruit to try and calm the matter down. Eventually, they found Xian Hua Qing, owner of another production company, who was able to calm Huang Langwei down for now. The Fallout Immediately after the situation was de-escalated, Anita Mui confided in her friend Chen Yao Jing, the tiger of Wan Chai, two hours after the assault. He understandably was indescribably furious upon hearing the news and immediately stormed back to the Take One karaoke bar, burst into Huang Langwei's room and demanded an audience and an explanation from him. This guy is brave. Is he a gangster as well? He's called the Tiger of Wan Chai. But he's going to some gangster's place and being like, yo, you slap my friends? I'll be like, oh, don't do that, you're gonna get murdered. They are murdering people all the time. He would not get it, however. Huang Lang Wei had already left, and in furious desperation, he turned to the remaining men in the room and told them he'd be back for revenge before slamming the door behind him and taking his leave. Two days later, on May the 6th, Chen Yao Jing was resting at his house when his phone rang. Uh, so this is the same dude, the tiger dude. I looked back. I, I have to say, I... <laughs> It's that like I do get confused with all these names. Because, you know, if it was like Mike and John, it's that obviously. I'd find that a little bit easier. But it's like, oh no, there's so many Hong Kong names. Hua Lang Wei had been spotted at a dim sum restaurant in Wan Chai, his turf. Okay, so this dude is a gangster. I guess I missed that. The furious anger that had consumed him two nights prior reignited in an instant, and he immediately raced out of the door to confront Huang Lang Wei, uh, only pausing to grab a large kitchen knife on his way out. Wait, that's the best weapon that you have? Full of hate and adrenaline, he soon found himself at the restaurant, but paused for a brief moment to catch his breath. He then pulled up the hood on his jacket, twisted the large kitchen knife around as to hide its blade behind his forearm, and entered the restaurant. He's gonna murder someone over, like, hitting his friends. Wow. He's gonna murder, like, some dangerous gangster. 
Calmly, he advanced inside and paced up the restaurant until he found Huan Langwei eating with five associates. Without hesitation, he flipped the knife around and slashed at Huang Langwei several times with the aid of a man possessed by a demon, and then fled the scene before anyone surrounding him could react and attempt to restrain him. Is slashing the best trap tactic with a knife? I feel like that's just going to injure someone. But you don't want to, like, not, but like, is this making any sense? is the sound of a slash and what is the sound of a stab like you just dip in the chest no otherwise you're just slashing them and they get like you end up like al capone with some scars on your face but like your all your insides are fine and they're the bits that keep you alive Huan Langwei was alive, but he was messed up. Exactly. His left arm, with which he had instinctively reached out to try and block the incoming tax attacks, had been rendered clean of flesh in places and cut down to the bone. Oh my god. Whoa. And as a result, he was losing a hell of a lot of blood. He was raced across Victoria Harbor to the Baptist Hospital in Kowloon Tong, where his condition was stabilized and he was moved to the emer- from the emergency care unit to a recovery ward on the eighth floor. He proved surprisingly popular over the following days and received several visitors of note. The first, shockingly, was from the police. Huang Langwei was a man bound by his criminal code, so he said nothing about his attacker to the police. He was just some crazy guy. He was trying to mug me. knows what he wanted. Ask him when you catch him. He, of course, knew exactly who had attacked him, but as the triads say, the rivers and lakes are about the rivers and lakes. The rivers and lakes are about the rivers and lakes? I have no idea what that means. I'm too small brain. What's the metaphor there? It's a metaphor for something, obviously. He's not really talking about rivers and lakes. I guess he's just like, we are, you know, this is a gang matter, right? Like, rivers and lakes are gangs, and he's like, it's not your business, cops. We handle this ourselves. He received his next visit at 5 a.m. on the morning of May the 7th. Two men approached a nurse on his ward and said that they'd like to visit their dear friend and wish him a speedy recovery. Since it was so early in the day, the nurse began to object and asked them to come back later, but after some emotional pleading, the men managed to acquire his room number, and the nurse decided to turn her back for a few moments. After all, what was the harm? It's not like anyone had to attend to him for a few hours. Wait. If you're some gangster dude, and you know you've got enemies because you're a gangster dude and you're just chilling out in hospital recovering and your arms all messed up and someone can just wander in and be like yo nurse which room's that bad gangster dude who i definitely don't want to stab what room's he in and she'll be like oh he's in room six and you're like thanks see you later gonna go to room six right now and just go in there and i assume destroy this dude with a knife or whatever while he's recovering why on earth doesn't he have some bodyguards or some like that or there should be security it turns out the potential for harm was actually quite high. As a few short moments after the door closed behind the five men, shots rang out in quick succession. What a f***ing surprise! The staff on the ward understandably dared not to try and intervene, being fully aware of their patient's triad connections and remained hidden until the men promptly left of their own accord. Also, if I was that nurse, they'd be like, hi, we're here to see our friends. Uh, we'd really like to see him. It'd be really nice if you let us in. I'd be like, absolutely, please go ahead. I know you're very dangerous. They called the police and inspected Huan Lang Wei to see if he could be saved. Shockingly, he was still alive, if only barely. Oh my god, this guy's a survivor! And after doing what they could to stabilize his condition, he was moved under police escort to Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which is better equipped to handle such extensive and violent trauma. Ultimately, however, they were unable to save him, and he succumbed to his wounds shortly thereafter, two days after slapping a neat boy. At this point in today's story, ladies and gentlemen, you're probably entertaining the exact same question that consumed Hong Kong in the wake of the shooting. Who were the gunmen? And did Anita Moy have anything to do with it? No, I don't think so. No. It was the it must have been the other gang dude, the guy with the knife, who like he went in, he stabbed him all up, he ruined his arm, he gets taken to hospital, and he's like, oh my god, that guy's he gets home with that kitchen knife all bloody and 
He sits down on his couch and he's like, ah, f <laughs> I just started a gang war, didn't I? And uh, if if I'm going to survive this gang war, i got to kill this other guy, like, ASAP. So send five people over to the apparently extremely easy to get into hospital and just pop him off. That's got to be what happens, right? I'm like 90% sure. Let's find out if I'm correct. You got to be you got to be thinking the same line as me, dear listener, right? Same thing. The court of public opinion at the time certainly decided she was complicit, believing the timing of the shooting only two days afterwards she was assaulted by Huan Lang Wei to be far too coincidental. Yeah, but it's not her organizing it. She was hanging out with one of her gangster friends or whatever, and he was like, "I'm not having this for you. I'm gonna take care of this." And he did. So, sort of, she did, was complicit, but not really. Anita Moore and her boyfriend, Ling Guao Bin, were invited by the police to assist in their investigation. And, much to my potentially yourselves in the audience's shock, the pair were found completely innocent with watertight alibis and questionable abilities to actually organize the killing beyond associations with a few dodgy show business figures. Exactly. I, why was public. I guess it's like fucking tabloids, right? Like, you look at this, some of this stuff in, in, in the rear view mirror. Like with all the logic of like reading a Wikipedia page, and you're like, okay, this makes sense. But at the time, the tabloids would be like, Hong Kong movie star responsible for murder, and you're like, okay, chill out, Hong Kong Daily Mail. It's not really that, is it? Naturally, Chen Yao Jing, the tiger of Wan Chai, the guy who she went to complain about who ended up slashing the dude, became the focus of the investigation following Anita Moy and Ling Gao Bin's exoneration. How is he not the focus to begin with, having been ID'd by several witnesses who were present at the Dim Sun restaurant when he attacked Huan Lei Wai prior, and he was immediately arrested and brought in for questioning? Wow, there were so many witnesses. Because if I was just chilling out having some Dim Sum at that restaurant, some guy comes in and goes over to the gangster table and starts stabbing him. And I'm like, oh, it's that famous gangster, and he's stabbing. I'll be like, I mean nothing. I saw nothing. This is brilliant dim sum. Carry on. <laughs> I'm such a coward, but gangs, man. I don't want to get... I don't want anything to do with gangs because they're scary. And I saw that Sicario movie. F*** that movie. <laughs> it's some scary after a very heated and publicly played out police investigation in which 200 people surrounded the police station where Chen Yao Jing was being detained and demanded his arrest, he was eventually released on bail pending further investigation. The police investigation continued, and after Anita Moy submitted to the fu a full investigation of her and Chen Yao Jing's relationship, including phone records and interviews with associates, the police concluded that Chen Yao Jing committed the assassination in the name of Xing Jiu to make a name for himself. Wait, who the Xing Zhou. What does that even mean? This is the first time. What, what is a Xing Zhou? In the name of Xing Zhou. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so dumb. It says it right here to make a name for himself. In the name of Xing Zhou. I guess Xing Zhou means like to make a name of himself. It's not a name. Right? Oh my God. I didn't even know. I don't even know. Look, Anita went to this dude and she was like, he hit me in the face. And this dude was like, I'm going to go f sh right up. Easy. Anita Mori's assault was simply an excuse to make a name for himself. He wasn't driven by lust, revenge, or any other emotion besides self-aggrandizement. Ultimately, despite the belief of the police in Chen Yaojing's complicity in the assassination, there wasn't enough evidence to nail him, nail, it, nail him for it. He was charged with aggravated assault for the attack at the Dim Sum restaurant and given a suspended sentence in light of the attack on Anita Mori carried out by the victim. Wait. So he went into a restaurant, stabbed someone up because his friend got slapped, which is fine. I mean, it's not good. But the police took that into consideration when they sentenced him and they were like, yeah, you don't actually have to go to prison. We'll suspend that. That's pretty nuts. 
As much as the public was very much on Anitamui and Chen Yao Jing's side, the unwanted extra focus was bringing great stress to Anitamui and Lin Guao Bin, both of who left for eight. What the f- I'm so lost. Who's Bin? Who's Bin? I don't know. Who both left for a long holiday to Thailand to help forget the incident and help the dust settle before they returned to Hong Kong. The dust did indeed settle, and for a time the Hong Kong movie scene was without any major violent incidents or triad controversy, but not for long. The Grand Prix shooting. Fast forward to November the 21st, 1993, and life was returning to normal for Chen Yao Jing, the guy. Again, this is the tiger dude, the guy who went and stabbed people up. Chen, part time triad lord, part time racing driver? What? Really? Found himself in Macau to drive the Grand Prix? Wait, as in Formula One Grand Prix? That's insane! He was out celebrating with the friends after a second place finish that day. That's absolutely mad. You've got to be incredibly talented to do that. The two men were stumbling down the steps of the New World Emperor Hotel after a long night of partying and gambling, ready to fall into their beds and await the foul hangover that would come to punish them for their night of vice. They would not make it back to the hotel, however, because as soon as the final door on their car closed, three motorbikes swung out from a distant road and screeched to a halt beside the car. The riders pulled out submachine guns, emptied their magazines into the car, and made their escape before the last cartridge had even landed on the ground. Both men died immediately. After conducting a rigorous investigation, the Macau police had absolutely no leads. They couldn't find any prints on the many cartridges that littered the scene. The killers dodged all CCTV cameras when making their escape, and no one came forward with any information. Sounds like the guy got revenge. Like, whoever was unhappy that he got that you know, he was shot up in his hospital bed, that other gang. They came. Surely you know that's coming. You started a gang war. The following day, the police received a call from a man claiming to be Juan Lang Hui, Juan Lang Wei's brother, who said he was ready to divulge all in order to avenge his younger brother. He gave a list of executions he claims to have been carried out by Chen Yao Xing and claimed that his surviving organization was furious and out for revenge. Anita Mui, who was becoming understandably increasingly paranoid after hearing about her friend's shooting and being warned of upcoming violence by Hong Kong police, went into hiding in one of the more unknown and discreet properties in her portfolio in North Point on Hong Kong Island, hoping that the Fukunese community there and their different criminal circles would offer a certain layer of protection. The Hong Kong police provided round-the-clock armored protection on the condition that she cut her social activities outside to nearly zero. She also terminated her contract for the movie Modern Call Girl, which was imminently due to enter production at an estimated cost of 10,000 Hong Kong dollars or 1.2 million US dollars. She stayed hiding for several months and nothing happened. There was no further violence and eventually she began to feel secure that her life was no longer in danger. She began gradually reducing her police security detail and beginning to return to normal life as she regained her confidence. Eventually, the shooting and violence that had so furiously surrounded her for that short time seemed like a distant memory, and she fully returned to a normal public life. The police never arrested or charged anyone for Chen Yao Jing's death, and to this day, the case remains unsolved. Something worth clearing up, in case it isn't clear in today's episode, none of the celebrities mentioned in today's episode were actually in league with criminals themselves. The triads in this period that infested the industry were seen as absolute parasites by the actual talent of the day, but a very powerful and frankly terrifying parasite that could bring great personal harm to themselves should they challenge its authority. Yeah, no, we de- I definitely didn't get the feeling they were working with these dudes when we mentioned that uh, they were holding guns to their heads and saying, take this role. 
that's when we we're like okay <laughs> they don't like them and shook the hands that needed shaking to go about doing so in the most peaceful way possible the same could not be said about the executives however plenty of whom were as bent as a nine bob nose maybe we'll go into more detail on this in a future episode speaking of future episodes what do you in the audience think about an episode focusing on chen yao jing in the future we didn't get the chance to explore him much in the detail today but i can't help thinking that a triad lord who moonlights as a racing driver has to be an interesting subject for a video that is like i said that's wild <laughs> I mean, I guess if you got the money, right? This, I've been watching that Drive to Survive TV show on Netflix, which is amazing. And there's that dude who's that billionaire's son who just bought a racing team, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can, I'll fund your racing team, or I'll buy it and give you all the money you need. But my son has to be in one of the cars. It's like, okay. And he's not bad, but he's not great. Barring a few interviews given immediately after the events, Anita Moy pretty much never publicly commented on the matters discussed today. She didn't want the stain on her public profile that came from incorrect assumptions being made about her connections to organized crime, and what's more, she simply wanted the whole traumatic and stressful episode buried so that she could get back on with her life. Last dismembered appendices. I thoroughly recommend anyone listening take the time to delve into Anita Mui's work when they have the time because she was a cracking singer and actor in her day. For those who'd like their heart rendered from their chest and left in tears after riding an emotional roller coaster, I'd recommend Rouge from 1987. And for those who'd like a comedy, I'd recommend Drunken Master 2 from 1994, as discussed in a previous footnote. Wait, 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 wait. Am I reading the version without footnotes, George? Oh, I was like, where are the normal pronunciation guides? And I realized I've opened a Word doc instead of a PDF. <laughs> God damn it. Okay, for those in, well, we'll do it right next time, won't we? For those interested in her music, her final Cantonese album, With, is incredible. This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. Thank you so much for watching or listening, depending on how you consume the show. Review would be awesome. Uh, like, subscribe, leave a comment. Let us know what, whether you want that. Try dudes like life covered or crimes covered or whatever we do here on casual criminals you know what's up you know what's up and thank you so much for listening or watching seeking the truth never gets old introducing june's journey the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.